0: Season 2, Episode 4, Leviathan and the Question of Limitations. How much government is too much? Karata, rejoice, be glad. Welcome to the fourth episode of the second season of the Lonely Professor podcast. My name is David Tabachnik, and I am a professor of political science at Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario, Canada. Last season was devoted to podcasts based on my course, Great Political Questions 1. I discussed ancient Greek political philosophy, focused on the works of Sophocles, Thucydides, Plato, and Aristotle. So I'm still going to begin each episode with the ancient Greek word kerata, which means rejoice or be glad. Because the Greeks remain an essential part of the foundation of the study of political ideas, and I think we should rejoice and be glad that we get to study political philosophy. Now, this podcast, this season, is designed to complement my course, Great Political Questions 2, which I've taught at Nipissing on and off for the last 15 years. I've decided to do a podcast because the COVID-19 virus has forced the closure of our campus and all in-person classes for the winter semester of 2021. As a result, I'm delivering this course online, and I figured this format would be a decent replacement for classroom meetings. I am the lonely professor because I have no interlocutors, no students to question. So I'm stuck giving this monologue instead of engaging in dialogue. In the last episode, I asked the question of equality. Can human beings be quantified and controlled? Equality and control may seem like an odd pairing, but as the episode played out, it became clear that Hobbes recognized the equality of the human body, psychology, our motion, and senses are all an important way to accurately describe every human being, and the key is we can then describe every individual in the exact same way. What is more, he also recognized that this convincing description could also be an opportunity for readers of the Leviathan to read thyself, or I suppose we should say read themselves in his book which essentially is a prescription for the improvement of the human condition, moving each person from the miserable state of nature into the peaceful civil society. This lack of difference and diversity among people then allows the state to function under one set of laws and under what has been called a social contract, one unified social contract. But while such unity is key for the proper function of Hobbes' contract, it must still be based on a mechanistic or a geometrical reality of the universe, which, of course, also governs our bodies and minds. This makes it demonstrable and logical, unlike contracts based on religion, superstition, or what Hobbes calls absurd speech. They are absurd because they are nonsensical and irrational, and thus, are subject to no end of claims and counterclaims, each claimant seeking political authority and dividing the loyalties of the citizenry. You say that God speaks through you? Well, in actuality, he speaks through me. Prove otherwise. He writes later in chapter 26, Miracles are marvelous works, but that which is marvelous to one may not be so to another. Sanctity may be feigned, And the visible felicities of this world are most often the work of God by natural and ordinary causes. And therefore, no man can infallibly know by natural reason that another has had a supernatural revelation of God's will. So, leaving aside the possibility of messiahs and prophets, Hobbes thinks that because we are all equal, we can be quantified, understood, and measured, and controlled. Convinced to acquiesce to state power, this rational and voluntary agreement to enter civil society means that we trade our absolute freedom or transfer it for security, which also means that we never give up our right to self-preservation. Okay, so this is really what we are where we're at at this point, and I just want to sort of clarify the the link from from la- last episode between a quality and control, right? Again, if we're all the same, you can measure one person (laughs) in detail, how how they function, how they think, how they move. And from that, you can, in fact, extrapolate to the function of everyone. Now, things get obviously complicated when it comes to different experiences and different thoughts. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that's the idea here. And then there's a little extra thing that I've talked about. Um, which is related to this rational and geometrical element of human beings. We are bodies in the world. So just like any particle moving through the universe, if you will, our bodies sort of are predictable in their movements. Certain things will affect it just just in the way that physics works. So um, that's why he wants not just to say uh, we all have to be the same, but we also have to then base... The conclusions in something real in, in science or physics, or as he often, you know, focuses on, geometry. Okay, so all of this, anyhow, leads to an obvious question. Outside of what seems a bare minimum requirement to not randomly kill each other, kill our fellow c- citizens, what restrictions then are put on the power of the Leviathan? Because remember, if we're trying to control people, we're doing this control through law through the power of the state. And so you could have a very minimal amount of power, which is just to stop people from committing murder, let's say. Or we can have a whole bunch of power. So is Hobbes describing a totalitarian state where the government actually controls all aspects of our lives? So this is then our question for this episode, the question of limitations. How much government is too much? The whole idea of limited government was conceived by another British social contract theorist, John Locke. Writing about a generation after Hobbes, Locke also considers what life is like in the state of nature and how the individual enters then civil society. He describes something much different than Hobbes and his condition of war. As he explains in his second treaties of government, so this is Locke, I quote, The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone, and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind, who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. Okay, so this sounds much better than, um, this is the state of nature for Locke, and sure, this sounds a heck of a lot better than the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short place Hobbes writes about. Sign me up. In good part, Locke comes to this very different conclusion because he firmly believed that not only was man made in the image of God, but also that God created the earth for human use. He writes in section 27 of chapter 5 of property of the second treaties, so Locke's very well known for his theories about property, and so here's the sort of key quote from, from Locke on this subject. Though the earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has property in his own person. This no body has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state of nature, hath provided, and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with and joined to it something that is his own and thereby makes it his property. All right, so this is actually kind of neat. He's basically saying we mix our labor with the soil as is often uh, summarized and suddenly we, of course, then get property. So what uh, was common becomes individuated, becomes our own, our own individual property. When we read the actual text of Locke, we actually see this based in a religious or theological argument based on interpretations of passages in the Bible which indicate that God created nature and then gave it to all mankind in common. And as I just said, the problem then is how to differentiate a particular part of creation as your own. Locke claims again, because each of us are possessors or owners of our own bodies, and that's actually kind of neat, eh? He's saying, the first thing you have property over is your own body. So that's that's obviously kind of an interesting concept, isn't it, if, if you hadn't thought about it before. But because you own your own body, then you own the work of your hands, and then again, when we mix our labor with the soil, so to speak, the resulting product is also our own. So the crops of the farmer or the minerals of the miner can be rightly called private property and not goods in common or a contribution to the public purse as it is said, so it's not owned by the government, it is ours. The 20th century political philosopher C.B. McPherson describes this particular view of human beings as possessive individualism, which goes on to powerfully shape our modern views of politics and government. Okay, so that's just what Macpherson calls it, possessive individualism. And I quote here McPherson. Hopefully this is helpful. The individual, it was thought, is free in as much as he is proprietor of his person and capacities. The human essence is freedom from dependence on the wills of others, and freedom is a function of possession. Okay, so that's actually much better said than what I was saying. Possessive individualism, we own our own bodies, it's our own property, and this is actually then the foundation for liberty, for freedom. Locke intends his theory of property and work as a criticism, then, of the absolute power of the English monarchy. If individuals can rightly produce and accumulate goods, they gain freedom from the government, eroding the absolute control of kings and queens. Instead, the government should be quite limited in its powers, serving the ends of protecting private property owners. This is, of course, the conception of limited government. It is founded on the natural right to private property, which Locke claims is inalienable. It cannot be taken away. It can never be sacrificed. It cannot be traded or transferred to the government in exchange for safety. So quite, quite different than Hobbes. Locke clarifies later in the treaties, which is his big work on this subject, the reason why men enter into society is the preservation of their property. and the end, while they choose and authorize a legislative, so a legislature, is that there may be laws made and rules set as guards and fences to the properties of all society, to limit the power and moderate the dominion of every part and member of the society. He then continues, "...whensoever, therefore, the legislative shall transgress this fundamental rule of society, and either by ambition, fear, folly, or corruption, endeavor to grasp themselves, or put in the hands of any other, an absolute power over the lives, liberties, and estates of the people. By this breach of trust they forfeit the power of the people." That, that had been put into their hands for quite contrary ends, and it devolves to the people who have a right to resume their original liberty and by the establishment of a new legislative, such as they shall think fit, provide for their own safety and security, which is the end for which they are in society. Oh, wow, so this is even better here, and you can sort of hear some familiar ideas. He's saying that if the government oversteps its very limited role, protecting our property, we, the people, can overthrow it and make a new government in its place. And the idea is our freedom, our property, has to be first and foremost. There cannot be then saying, well, no, our monarchy, our aristocracy, our nobility, our divine right is more important. Locke is saying, phooey, our natural right to property is most important. So, uh, again, very different uh, idea. Uh, No surprise that these related ideas of private property, limited government, and revolution are a huge influence on the founding fathers of the United States. As I quoted in the last episode, the American Declaration of of Independence really reflects Locke's ideas, and, and I read from it some famous passages. laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So there you have it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson basically stole this all from John Locke. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as supplied by private property must be protected by governments, and if any government fails to deliver these ends, it is subject to revolution and replacement. For Americans, this is a rather familiar mantra. Locke's vision of limited government means that the state stays out of your business and merely protects contracts you make with others, and your property, which includes your own person. This vision of maximizing freedom through capitalist economics is associated with liberalism, as in flag-waving liberty, don't tread on me stuff. (laughs) Some Americans are very fond of that don't tread on me sign. And uh, sometimes we then call this actually classical liberalism which describes what Locke has been talking about in his work because it distinguishes it from contemporary liberalism, which strangely is associated with big government. And that that's actually an interesting story, how this word liberalism means different things at different times to different people, and perhaps we will wade into that later. And actually, it's kind of relevant to, to this sort of second take I'm going to have on, on Locke because... Uh, His version of the social contract um, is not quite as it is described by Thomas Jefferson. And uh, you, with so many things, have to do more reading to figure this out. Uh, I don't think a lot of other things Locke wrote really fit into what we now call classical liberalism, sometimes associated with libertarianism. Looking at Locke's later and far lesser known essay, an essay on the poor law, this was written in 1697, uh, and uh, actually he wrote it when he served as the commissioner of trade and plantations uh, for Parliament. It gave him actually tremendous influence, and he actually wrote and, and, and influenced a lot of pieces of legislation related to international trade and manufacturing, which is kind of a neat thing. You know, he wasn't just sitting there writing books, but he was actually helping make laws. He took a keen interest in addressing the problem of the multiplying poor, as he called them, and their associated costs via the relief of parishes. So the relief of parishes, this is a reference to something like a minimal welfare system or charity system, uh, which was run by the church in the 17th century. Locke actually didn't like this and had a remedy, which he articulated in great great detail, along with a harsh critique of those promoting England's established poor laws, which he saw as far too generous. So, you know, way back in the 17th century, saying, why are you giving all these uh, poor people, um, you know, these funds or or food? He said that this is not good. By Locke's account, uh, the source of poverty is not a lack of employment or opportunity or even stuff, but rather is found in the lack of character or the moral depravity of the impoverished individual. So it's about your own individual character. And actually, that's not that uh, unfamiliar. Uh, You know, some some classical liberals say the same sort of thing, I suppose. He says, the growth of the poor stems from, and I quote from his essay on the poor law here, the relaxation of discipline and corruption of manners virtue and industry being as constant companions on the one side as vice and idleness are on the other okay so again it's about your own vice and idleness you you got you got to get to work is what he's saying get a job as you might say you know if someone asked you for some change on, on the street again if you're if you're a, sort of a lock kind of guy he goes on to say that their debauchery the the vicious, and idle people, demand the passage of a new set of laws that will, depending on age and location, variously arrest beggars and force them into hard labor on his majesty's ships for a period of three years, or sent to to a house of correction for the same amount of time any boy or girl between the ages of 3 and 14 caught begging will be sent to a working school to be soundly whipped and kept at work till evening. I quote, (laughs) For those unable to work due to some sort of physical disability, Locke proposed a system where they would be forced to wear a certain type of badge that would give them permission to beg during particular hours of the day. Very nice, Locke. That take cares of take care of everything. Now, so, we can clearly see in Locke not just the connection between work, the accumulation of private property and good character, and an ethical life, but also an almost perverse cruelty in reaction to people lacking these things and qualities. So, if you caught it, then far from any notion of limited government, Locke is actually endorsing here A state-run crusade against the poor, the impoverished. All of this is to say that, for Locke, the protections provided by the government, limited government, are largely determined by your ability to first meet certain requirements of capability and character. If you lack the means or the wherewithal to accumulate property and assert your possessive individualism, you are not considered a party to Locke's social contract. And it seems you forfeit any freedom you might still have. And again, he promotes the idea of government run workhouses, prisons, and other means to instill within that segment of the population a right way to live, whether they like it or not. Okay, so, so much for live and let live. This is coercive, undoubtedly. In other words, limited government can be rather unlimited if you're deemed lacking in the right virtues. Liberty for just some, not for all. The other great advocate of limited government is yet another British political philosopher, John Stuart Mill, who was working and writing about a century after Locke. Okay, so we're just going to do a little more of this. In his famous essay on liberty, another favorite of libertarians, Mill provides what might seem like a principled opposition to state intrusion into the day-to-day lives of citizens. So again, uh, for limited government, I quote, that the only purpose for which power can be rightly exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. He cannot rightly be compelled to do or forbear because it will be better for him to do so because it will make him happier because in the opinions of others, to do so would be wise or even right. Okay, so this seems rather clear. Only under circumstances where an individual will cause harm to others is the state justified in intervening in the affairs of a citizen. So I don't know if you caught all of that from Mill, but basically he's saying, look, We're not going to be judging the uh, character of individuals. They can do whatever they want as long as they're not harming anyone else. So this so-called harm principle validates laws against things like violence and theft, we would say, because taking someone else's property is harmful, but not much else. So again, limited government. We wouldn't say bad manners and bad behavior, are something the government should get themselves involved in fixing. People may be rude, they may be distasteful, but really it's none of the state's business. However, and always, if we keep reading, what might at first seemed like a significant limitation on government power is left far more ambiguous. And I quote Mill again, There are good reasons for remonstrance with him, or reasoning with him, or persuading him, or entreating him, but not for compelling him, or visiting him with any evil in case he do otherwise. To justify that, the conduct from which it is desired to deter him must be calculated to produce evil to someone else. The only part of the conduct of any one for which he is amenable to society is that which concerns others." In the part which merely concerns himself, his independence is of right absolute over himself, over his own body and mind. The individual is sovereign. So the issue then is: what can actions? What actions can count as calculated to produce evil to someone else? So that that's a, again really it's a reiteration, really. So so um, how how. How far does this harm principle go is what we're really thinking about here. As it turns out, this ends up being a rather long list of things because the exercise of our own freedom must always be secondary to our respect for others' freedom. If we don't exercise this respect, we can expect the state to intervene. Reasonably, Mill asserts that the state may properly enforce the duties of parents in respect to their children. Parents of poor moral fiber may have their children removed from the home. So this seems actually to fit well with the harm principle mentioned above. But what if the only person you are harming is yourself? So I think, you know, it's a difficult thing, no doubt about it, but if children are being hurt, uh, harmed in this instance, um, yes, the state would intervene even to that very important relationship between parents and children. But now we ask, well, what if I'm just harming myself? Surprisingly, Mill argues that we cannot do harm to ourselves without harming others. He writes, No person is an entirely isolated being. It is impossible for a person to do anything seriously or permanently hurtful to himself without mischief reaching at least to his near connections, and often far beyond them. The gambler, the prostitute, and the drug addict all then require the intervention of the state for their own good, all represent the possibility of harm to others as they harm themselves. So both in our public dealings with others and even then in our private dealings by ourselves, we need to have the good judgment not to do harm. Problematically, many individuals may simply lack this virtue. In a different work, Mill writes, the uncultivated cannot be competent judges of cultivation. Those who most need to be made wiser and better usually desire it least, and if they desire it, would be incapable of finding the way to it by their own lights. And he goes on, in the matter of education, the intervention of government is justifiable because the case is not one in which the interest and judgment of the consumer are a sufficient security for the goodness of the commodity. So both the uncultivated and the uneducated are in no position to judge what is best for themselves or anyone else. Not only do they require government intervention, but necessarily this must be done without their agreement as they are either too vicious or ignorant, they have bad judgment, to know what is best for them. Therefore, While Mill might argue something like each is the best judge of his own interests, which is often the way we understand classical liberalism, so I get to decide how to live my own life is basically what that means, this perhaps, obviously, is not always the case. Yeah, this is obviously not always the case for Mill, at least. The individual is not always the best judge or the best guardian of his own interests. Really, only the moral, educated, Civically responsible citizen is the best judge of their own actions. And it takes state intervention for the individual to become that citizen if they haven't become it on their own. If we accept this characterization of Mill and of classical liberalism, we then see liberalism has at its heart a difficult tension between the goal to maximize liberty and the necessity to prepare and train individuals to direct themselves towards good ends when they get that liberty, right? We we want people to be responsible with it. And how do you get someone to be responsible if they are free to ignore all advice, education, and character development? Well, no, that's not going to work. So in order to ensure that harm to others, the harm principle, is limited as much as possible, Mill sees the state playing a rather large role in developing a sense of civic responsibility among the citizens. It must teach them how to live together in a right and proper way. Not only must the state restrain people from making errors in judgment through things like a threat of coercion, it must also promote morally correct decision making, employing non-coercive measures such as education. Therefore, the liberal state has a dual role to remove obstacles to virtue and to also educate citizens in good behavior. So, to the question of limitations, how much government is too much, Locke and Mill seem to give one answer, which echoes David Thoreau's, Henry David Thoreau's famous motto, that government is best which governs least. okay. But then seem to actually give another answer. Limited government is fine for good citizens, but everyone else needs to hear what Ronald Reagan called the nine most terrifying words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Alright, so hopefully you caught that. I used Thoreau for, you know, one part of it, you know, and then I used Ronald Reagan for the other. And and Reagan gave gave this in a speech once. And he said, these are the nine most scary words. I'm from the government and I'm here to help help you become a good person in the, in the instance of Locke and Mill. So, obviously, we have to talk about Hobbes. So where is Hobbes in all of this? At the beginning of part two, in chapter 27, we are reminded that, and I quote, the final cause end, or design of men who naturally love liberty and dominion over others, in the introduction of that restraint upon themselves, in which we see them live in commonwealth, is the foresight of their own preservation, and of a more contented life thereby, that is to say of getting themselves out of that miserable condition of war, which is necessarily consequent, as has been shown, to the natural passions of men, when there is no visible power to keep them in awe and tie them by fear of punishment to the performance of their covenants. So again, because of our foresight, we voluntarily place constraints on the way we live, uh, moving into the commonwealth. We recognize that our own preservation is at stake in the state of nature and thus choose the more contented life where we are compelled to fulfill certain obligations out of a fear of punishment. Following the law is our obligation. So now on the face of it, the voluntary and rational nature of this limitation. So again, just to just to clarify, because we, we talked about this in the last episode to some degree, Right? We do this voluntarily because it's a thought experiment, right? we We go through our minds rationally and we say, well, this is the right decision to make. So it's a voluntary and rational decision., um, It seems to me if that's a proper interpretation of Hobbes, this is better than the paternalistic limits articulated by Locke and Mill. There is as of yet no mention of having to act in a virtuous, cultivated, an educated way by whose ever standard, right? So, Hobbes is not saying once you follow the law as such, okay, that that necessarily is going to make you a good person. I don't think Hobbes ever thinks you're going to be a good person, right? Um, the possibility of your passions uh, uh, resulting in violence are always with you, and you, by a force of will, of course, uh, your sense of obligation, in fact, uh, keep keeps you from from doing so. That's the idea here now again that's a bit unclear of course because uh, you know he hasn't really told us what what our contract what all the rules of our contract actually are i just say follow the law uh what is the content of our covenant exactly again at the moment in our reading it is simply to obey any and all rules made by the sovereign or get punished which is very straightforward here um I rely on Nui to provide an important clarification, and I quote, What we have is an imaginary contract, but a real agreement with real obligatory force. Unlike the hypothetical contract, the agreement concerned is real, and since agreement creates obligation, the obligations created by the agreement are real as well. The contractual elements in Hobbes' theory then become a metaphorical redescription of the actual undertakings we have made. The idea is not that someone needs to have read Leviathan in order to make the agreement, but that it offers a way of understanding the political relationships in which people already find themselves, including their obligation to obey the sovereign. I, and I think that's a really important corrective, isn't it, and fairly obvious, but needs to be said, right? We... we None of us are doing really what Hobbes is saying, like, word for word, right? We weren't in the state of nature and then signed some sort of social contract with with a list of things that we were obliged to do, transferring our absolute freedom, getting security in exchange, and then moving into civil society. Of course, that's not the case, and Newey points this out. But we have, in fact, made an agreement, all of us, when we live in the state, in What Hobbes is doing is saying, how did this come about? How can we understand this and maintain it, most importantly? And that's the idea here. Um, So it must be pointed out, then, that individuals may place themselves under a whole host of moral and religious obligations on top of that, as well as agreements they have made with friends and neighbors. So, So, again, our obligations are not just to the state. So on the one hand, the problem with these agreements is that we simply cannot be expected, nor can we expect anyone else to always abide by those obligations. As Hobbes repeats a familiar idea, and covenants without disorder are but words and have no strength to secure a man at all. Right? Generally, there's not violence involved in our religious or uh, moral or uh, familial or friendly obligations, but... It's different than with the state because the sword is involved. So as I go on, on the other hand, you can still feel obliged or have a conviction to anything or to anyone you want. As long as you don't outwardly act upon those obligations and convictions in violation to your overriding obligation to the state. So for example, you can't claim a religious conviction forced you to break the law. Um... So again, we understand the hierarchy of things here. You can't say, "Well, I made an agreement with my friend to steal that big t- screen television; that was my obligation." So you can't you can't arrest me. Well, that that of course is ridiculous. Um, now, the interesting thing that we get into immediately here is you can, of course, think anything you want, which I think is actually quite distinct from Locke and Mill, who are saying, you know. It's about the goodness of your character. And I suppose people of good character aren't thinking evil thoughts in their heads um, and then behaving in a good way. That would be rather like like a sociopath would do something along those lines. But Hobbes is like, well, that doesn't really matter. There are no thought crimes for Hobbes, certainly not in his Leviathan. So you can go ahead and covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male or female ser- servants, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, that's from Exodus twenty seventeen. The main thing is you just don't steal it. So you can covet it, but you don't steal it. Okay, so that's, that's the idea. And I, get, I think Locke and Mill are saying, no, 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 you shouldn't covet thy neighbor's stuff. In the next couple of pages in the Leviathan, Hobbes actually provides a nice list of why citizens need a common power to keep them in awe. So this is now page 118. He says, uh, here six things. First, men are constantly seeking honor. Second, there's a difference between private and public good. Three, men have differing ideas of which is the best course to govern. Four, there's no agreement of the definition of words. For example, the definition of good and evil. Five, men, when not in fear, believe they are wiser or more able than the government. And six, overall, it is just not natural for men to agree, where it is natural for most other animals. Fair enough. Okay, so those are the six reasons why we need a common power to keep us in awe. Uh, all of that stuff. You know, first, when men are seeking constantly seeking honor. Okay, that makes sense. And, and it seems fair enough, Indeed. Uh, Anyhow, Hobbes continues explaining that it is a, and I quote here from page 120, a covenant of every man with every man in such manner as if every man should say to every man, I authorize and give up my right of governing myself to this man or this assembly of men on this condition that you give up thy right to him and authorize all his actions in the like manner. This done, the multitude so united in one person is called a commonwealth. Okay, so I'll give up my absolute right. If you do the same, we will transfer it over to this common wealth. Okay, and so in fact, we are not really obliged to this Leviathan, this monster. We're actually obliged to each other. But the content of that obligation, of course, is still unclear. Uh, We understand why we're doing it, but what is it exactly that we're obliged to? And that's what, you know, I'm trying to figure out here. We are further told that, but by this institution of a commonwealth, every particular man is author of all the sovereign doth. And consequently, he that complaineth of injury from his sovereign complaineth of what, whereof he himself is author, and therefore ought not to accuse any man but himself, no, nor himself of injury, because to do injury to oneself is impossible. Hmm, That's kind of... Interesting, so the obligation goes so far as to deny the individual any foundation for reasonable complaint if they are punished by the sovereign because they themselves are the authors of their own injury. It follows that no man that hath sovereign power can justly be put to death. That is to say, we can't just overthrow or kill those that make up the government because we don't like how we are being treated, Uh, and more on that later. And I, sh- I should pause here. So, so we get the concept, at least, and I think this is very straightforward. Uh, in essence, by uh, voluntarily and rationally going into the Commonwealth, giving ourselves over to it, um, we make the Commonwealth sovereign, right? And so when we say, hey, you know, I like stealing big screen TVs. Why are you coming and arresting me? Um, you you have no real standing there, do you? You say, well, no, you knew the law coming in, and we made a law against stealing big screen TVs. I, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with big screen TVs. Let's uh, say, you know, a PlayStation 5. Apparently, that's something you would be more likely to steal. Okay, so the second part, of course, makes sense. You can't then say, well, I really don't like this. Um, therefore, I'm going to like it violently overthrow the government that doesn't make any sense either Um, but uh, it gets kind of complicated when it comes to that because uh, self-preservation is involved in there too so we're going to come back to that at any rate, Hobbes continues writing, it belongeth of right to that hath sovereignty to be judged both of the means of peace and defense and to do whatsoever he shall think necessary to be done ah, okay Uh, While we still have little in the way of specifics, it seems that we at least have a preliminary answer from Hobbes on the question of limitations. How much government is too much? For Hobbes, right here on page 124, he says, It is as much government as the sovereign decides is necessary to keep the peace. So that's it. And again, what the specifics are, we're going to have to get into. We need here to be reminded of the somewhat strange notion that the artificial man, as he described it at the beginning of the book, or Leviathan, is still in the state of nature and thus maintains a right to absolute freedom and therefore can do whatsoever they think is necessary to achieve their ends, which in this instance is peace. Okay, so that is really key here and uh, we're going to get more into that, but I just want to sort of introduce that idea And it makes some sense on the face of it. I'm probably going to be stepping over uh, some of the things I'm going to say later on, but I want you to grasp that. So this artificial man is not a signatory to the social contract. They still function as though they are in this so-called state of nature. And an easy way to understand that is... um, the state can still fight wars. Now, I'm going to say fight wars with other countries, other Leviathans, so to speak, if you if you gather what I'm saying. And, of course, it is an interesting thing. When you're fighting a war, you can kill people. Uh, that's somehow legal. Uh, you can't then uh, turn around and then kill people uh, among your fellow, fellow citizens. That would be murder. So how is that possible? Well, in one instance, you are the Leviathan, you are an appendage of the Leviathan as a soldier, and therefore the the rules of killing and violence that may apply within your country don't apply when you're, let's say, out in Afghanistan or something like that. You suddenly can kill people. Now, there are rules around that, but um, again, just, just sort of grasp the concept. And I I think I'll leave that there for now, but kind of remember that um, what... Other aspects, though, of this uh, doing whatever they can, they want, basically, uh, doing whatsoever they feel necessary. Uh, and we learn, of course, that uh, this includes that the doctrines of all books should be reviewed before they are published, and uh, the Leviathan can prescribe rules and what goods and what actions may be done without being molested by any of his fellow subjects. And this is... Uh, what men call property so that's on page 124 and 125 so just to sort of pick up on what i was getting at before not only can the government decide what gets published okay so they can censor things okay and that's important because then it can control what ideas the citizens have access to it also gets to decide what is uh civil or polite behavior and I, i actually read that wrong uh, what rules and what goods and what actions may be do is propriety uh, is what I said. I said property. I had lock on the mind. And so that's a reference then to how people behave. So um, this kind of gives us a little bit of a headache, doesn't it? Because I was sort of suggesting – Hobbes doesn't really care about, um, you know, uh, thought crimes, <laughs> like I mentioned before. But here he is saying the way you behave does matter. All right, well, um, that sounds rather strict, then, if not uh, totalitarian, as I've said it before. We still aren't quite sure, though, what content may be censored, okay, and what particular or rude conduct may be restricted. There, there's not a list of what things are boorish, for example, in Hobbes' view. And so I hope you appreciate what I'm saying. It could be that the censoring of books is very, very minimal. I mean, a country like Canada is a very liberal, uh, small, l liberal country. Um, but there are still, of course, obscenity laws. Certain things can get published. I wouldn't necessarily say that's totalitarian, Uh, Same is true in the United States, perhaps a little more liberal than Canada, uh, depending upon, I guess, the state you're living in uh, as as far as uh, which of the 50 states. So we can't then just say because Hobbes is saying uh, good behavior and censorship are part of the state's concerns, we can't say "Mm, uh, this is totalitarian. I, I think that would be a bit of jump of logic. Okay, so conceivably, conceivably, then, a sovereign may decide upon very loose rules and morals that restrict very few ideas and very little behavior. Nonetheless, as Hobbes finishes chapter 18, the main idea is that the sovereign's power is total in theory and most definitely indivisible. However it manifests, whether in a people's assembly or in a monarchy, there can be no higher independent power than the state, than the Leviathan, than the Commonwealth, and this, of course, includes the Church, right? So that's that. That's those are the main ideas as they've been laid out. Hobbes then moves on to discuss the several kinds of Commonwealth in Chapter 19. And actually, I should just pause, even though we're going to get to that in a moment, right? So what is the form that this government takes? And he hasn't really told us. That's what he's going to tell us now. Uh, there are different forms. In fact, as he says here on page 129, nine, three kind. there are three kinds of commonwealths. For the representative must needs be one man or more. And if more, then it is the assembly of all or but a part. When the representative is one man, then... Is the commonwealth a monarchy? When an assembly of all that will come together, then it is a democracy or popular commonwealth. When assembly, when an assembly of a part only, then it is called an aristocracy. Oh, okay, there we go. So, thanks very much. So we got there: the uh, monarchy, the democracy, and the aristocracy. So that was rather uh, complicated, as Hobbes likes to be, but but I think we got it out. And then he says there are, are the same forms misliked. So he's saying there's the opposites. So there, tyranny is the opposite then of monarchy or the misliked form of monarchy. Oligarchy for aristocracy and then anarchy for democracy. So this is kind of neat because it is actually a play on Aristotle's regimes Uh, This was presented in Book 3 of Chapter 6 of The Politics. Some of you have read that book. Notably, where Aristotle Aristotle calls regimes natural and deviant, sometimes we use the word perverted, which is kind of a funny way of looking at a regime, Hobbes merely calls them liked and misliked because there are no natural regimes, of course, for Hobbes in his description of politics, Politics for Hobbes is artificial, the artificial man. Somewhat surprisingly, Hobbes seems to decide that there is no qualitative difference between any of the regimes monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. He says, It is manifest that men who are in absolute liberty may, if they please, give authority to one man to represent them everyone as well as give such authority to an assembly of men whatsoever and consequently may subject themselves if they think good to a monarch or absolutely as to any other representative. Okay, so he says the difference between regimes is merely of a convenience or aptitude to produce the peace and security of the people for which in they were instituted. Huh. So we can really pick what kind of government we want here. Sometimes, actually, we do have interpretations of Hobbes saying that he's a real believer in absolute monarchy. Well, it doesn't seem so here in these passages quite clearly, and it doesn't sound very totalitarian at all. Uh, Now, once we pick our kind of regime, uh, you know, it seems like we are stuck with it at least for a long while, so we better pick wisely. Um, and on the other hand, we could say that some regimes might be more convenient than other ones. Uh, here, here's part of these arguments around what Hobbes is actually talking about. This is from Aperly, a scholar, uh, I quote from their interpretation. In another important respect, however, these three forms of government are not an all on equal footing. And the elements of law another work by Hobbes, for example. Hobbes considers the problem of how a multitude of persons are to get themselves out of the state of nature and into civil society. The problem is that a multitude is not a single entity it does not act in a unified way, nor can any action done in a multitude of people met together be attributed to the multitude or truly called action of the multitude unless every man's hand and every man's will have concurred together. He was quoting Hobbes there. And goes on to say, a multitude is an unstable entity for, though in their persons they run together, yet they concur not always in their designs. Okay, so this makes some sense. He's basically saying, Aperley is saying that Hobbes is saying that democracies are actually quite difficult to run. Because whatever differences of opinion or partisan disagreements might occur... um, there has to ultimately be some way to agree on the law in the end. If not, the state will break into factions and dissolve, which of course is the worst case scenario for Hobbes. So a civil war, for example, that destroys the state. So no doubt about it, Such disagreements are less likely in a monarchy. Okay, so maybe he is advocating for monarchy to some degree, at least by Aperley's suggestion here. But, of course, a well-run democracy um, might work out, but you can just see sort of just in a theoretical way, oh yeah, a good monarch, that's much more straightforward, isn't it? But even monarchies have difficulties. For example, now I'm back to Hobbes, sovereignty may descend upon an infant or one that cannot discern between good and evil, and consisteth in this, that the use of his power must be in the hand of another, man or some assembly of men, which are to govern by his right and in his name, as curators and protectors of his person and authority. Okay, so uh, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? So like... We're, we're talking about hereditary monarchy quite quite clearly, and so that gets complicated when the son of the king, okay, or it could have been the daughter of the queen, fine, um, you know, are not so bright or, or even so mature or perhaps are rather bad in their judgment. Uh, this gets complicated. You then have to have others govern in their name, and this can be rather inconvenient, can't it? Um Uh, And so uh, you're kind of stuck with the monarchy. And and actually, believe it or not, Canada is still ruled as a monarchy. (laughs) Only it's one where the monarch simply agrees to follow the advice of the democratically elected government of Canada, our parliament. Still, uh, Queen Elizabeth still gets to pass, I mean, technically, I think officially, uh, every bill. Uh, that passes through our parliament, our legislature. So she has to sign it before it comes law. And she also appoints all government officials, including the prime minister. Now, again, I can easily get into the weeds here. I love talking about this funny little aspect of Canadian government as a constitutional monarchy, as it's often called. But all of this is really done on the advice of the prime minister themselves. But uh, the point is that uh, Canada never had a revolution we stuck with the monarchy and you can see then um this is almost as what Hobbes is suggesting it has uh, evolved we we didn't have a revolt we had an evolution as we like to say and so here we are up up north here in Canada still ruled by a monarch um so again this also deals with the right of succession doesn't it right when when Government is handed down from one person to another or set of persons to another set of persons, which seems in and of itself to put down any notion that Hobbes uh, was also promoting some sort of authoritarianism. There has to be some sort of way uh, government is passed down. Now, we, we could say, OK, this simply means people die eventually. A king is going to die. But maybe uh, this is done, you know, in a more democratic way as well. It's a little unclear. Um the main concern, though, when it comes to these th- sorts of things, is to avoid the problem of dissolution uh, of the of the Commonwealth coming apart. Of course, so you know, every time you know uh, it's time to have a new government, uh, we don't want. To risk the state falling apart, uh, you know, this seemed to actually have little flickers of this possibility uh, in the United States on January sixth of uh, two thousand twenty-one, when uh, there was this uh, so-called sedition or insurrection uh, in the in Washington D.C. I mean, geez, this was supposed to be a peaceful transfer of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't that peaceful. Uh, Anyhow, uh, Matthew sums up, so I'm going to get back to the subject of Hobbes. According to Hobbes, men will be disposed to sedition if and only if they are discontented, hope that they may succeed in obtaining their ends through sedition, and believe that they have the right to act thus. Men so disposed will engage in sedition so long as there is a leader available to them, a man of credit to set up the standard and blow the trumpet. Okay, there's my friend Trump, uh, and I continue from Matthew. As the absence of any one of these conditions would prevent sedition, Hobbes recommends actions by the sovereign in each direction, but he especially urges the elimination of any kind of education of those opinions that men take to justify resistance. Okay, that makes more sense then. (laughs) So as noted above, the key idea then again is an education that represses and removes any and all sense that revolution or sedition would be a good idea. Unlike the revolutionary-minded American founding fathers who argue that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to the ends of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government, Hobbes would much more likely argue for the Canadian model, not seeing any point in revolution, okay, which would only be an opportunity for misery and disorder. Okay, so, you know... Canada, I guess, is way more Hobbesian than the, the United States. But look at what you got. You got Donald Trump and, and you know, your sedition. So I don't know uh, which is better. <laughs> right now, Canada seems a little bit better. But, you know, talk to me next week. Uh, okay, so this all seems very clear when Hobbes writes, For the passion of men are commonly more potent than their reason. It follows that where the public and private interests are most closely united There is the public most advanced. Okay, so it's up to the leader or leaders to make sure private interests coincide with the public interests. For instance, a rich king will only survive if his subjects are also rich. Otherwise, the passion of men may overcome their reason, leading them to think that they should no longer follow the laws of the land and essentially overthrow the monarchy and take all of his, you know, good stuff. You know, all those powdered wigs and high-heeled shoes and other things that, you know, monarchs have. So at once, the sovereign is unrivaled in power, but also has a responsibility for the commodious living of their subjects. Aha! Right? So we've ha- we have a, something else to hang our hats on here. Commodious living. The problem is, again, the content of this commodious living is not enumerated. Okay? But, <coughs> pardon me, we, we would say perhaps relative to each citizen, right? It's up to us to decide what we think commodious living actually is. The point, though, is that a content citizenry will keep the commonwealth stable. But do we have any opinion but—oh, sorry—but do we have any option but to acquiesce to the government? Okay, so like—so maybe we disagree. Uh, We say, no, I'm not having a contented life. I'm not having a commodious living. Can we then do as the Americans say we can do, declare independence, uh, demand revolution— Uh, is that something that is an option for Hobbes? Mm -mm. Let's just keep that in mind. The next chapter does consider how anyone can actually assert dominion over other persons. And as the title of the chapter indicates, parents hold dominion over their children and despots hold dominion over the people they conquer. Children provide According to Hobbes, tacit consent of their parents' dominion by accepting their care. So that's kind of interesting. So if you, if you breastfeed after you're born, you're basically saying, yes, parents, you have dominion over me. A conquered people, however, have a choice to consent. They can agree to the dominion of the victor, so or, or the, pe- the, the person conquering them, or they can refuse in actual fact. Here Hobbes makes an important distinction between servants and and slaves. The vanquished is a servant, which is not meant a captive, which is kept in prison or bonds, till the owner of him that took him or bought him of one that did shall consider what to do with him. For such men, commonly called slaves, have no obligation at all, but may break their bonds or the prison and kill or carry away captive their master justly. So that's on 141 of my text. We are servants if we make a covenant with the new ruler, giving our word that we will abide by his laws, but we are slaves if we are captured and refuse to acquiesce. As we are still in the state of nature, our master can treat us in a nasty and brutish way, but by the same circumstances, Hobbes also gives us the option to revolt, to break our bonds, and even kill our jailer. So... That's the distinction between servant and slave here. When you're a servant, right, you have agreed to sort of certain rules of your employment, I guess. But when you're a slave, you're really just you're a captive. You're you're imprisoned. But he says, and that's really interesting because the only way you can be captive in this way and subject perhaps to death, a death penalty, is because you're in the state of nature. Right, and in the state of nature, you then can act also in this way, and you can revolt. You can kill your your captor. So again, in this instance, the captor, I guess, we would be viewing it as an illegitimate government. Right, that's the idea. So this is a critical admission from Hobbes. Now we know that subjects in a commonwealth are not simply prisoners. The state seems obliged to allow us to live. Our lives free of certain restraints, at least short of living in some sort of large prison camp, in in which case we'd be slaves, as, as I've sort of tried to describe. We also know that there is something akin to revolution for Hobbes, although it's not really revolution because the slave or prisoner never accepted the legitimacy of the regime in the first place. All right. So... Um, I hope that makes sense, and that's related to that earlier point about the Leviathan or the, the state not being a signatory to the social contract. You were, as a prisoner or a slave, you never signed the social contract. You're still in the state of nature, and therefore you can act in this nasty and brutish way, as can, of course, your captor, right? And that becomes kind of difficult. Who Who actually has more power? And, you know, again, trying, trying not to get too far ahead of myself. You know, if enough people agree with you, uh, if there are enough prisoners, perhaps you will have, in fact, the violent capacity to, in fact, kill your captor. Um, that may be a revolution then. At any rate, this is kind of neat because Hobbes also rejects any notion then of natural slavery. No individual can be made a slave by nature which again is something that Aristotle has accepted way back in the past, although somewhat grudgingly. Uh, So so at any rate, to the question of limitations, we now at least have a a minimal limit. The sovereign can neither kill nor imprison a loyal subject because this is no better than being in a condition of war where men maintain their absolute freedom. Finally, though, we do at least have something more than just mere self-preservation, simply just being alive but also some freedom of movement beyond that of a prisoner. And so do you see what I'm trying to do? I hope is I'm trying to sort of make a list of things that we actually can demand, uh, if you will, uh, or can expect. I don't think we can say can demand, can expect living in this Hobbesian commonwealth, uh, what is involved. So it's not just self-preservation, right? There's something else to it is what I'm saying. And it's a very minimal step up, but wait, there's more. Okay, He ends the chapter by reminding us that the skill of making and maintaining commonwealths consists in certain rules, as doth arithmetic and geometry, not as tennis play on practice only, which rules neither poor men have the leisure, nor men that have had the leisure have hitherto had the curiosity or the methods to find out. All right, so, you know, tennis, math, and geometry... Uh, similar to maintaining a commonwealth, what he's trying to say here is there is a science to doing this, to making this commonwealth that's unlike learning how to play tennis, which he says is just a matter of practice. In other words, don't approach politics as though it was some sort of game that you can play and just get better at. You actually have to have a plan, a a rule book, and, and indeed that's what the Leviathan is. The next chapter seems very important for our question uh, of the liberty of subjects. He begins by explaining that liberty of freedom signifieth properly the absence of opposition. So returning to the very start of Hobbes' argument about matter and motion, freedom is about being unimpeded in your trajectory, right? So you're moving through space, you're matter in motion. So freedom is just being able to move, is what he's saying. This is pretty straightforward. Nelson puts it this way. On this view, our physical impediments count as constraints. A person is free so long as he is not tied up, chained, or otherwise physically obstructed, such is Hobbes' normative claim about constraint. But this claim commits him to a particular account of what being free will look like. If freedom is to be posited, of all agents or objects who are not physically restrained, then as a descriptive matter, the situation of free people will be extremely indeterminate. They may choose to do or not do, be or not be, any number of different things. The state of free people in a Hobbesian universe looks like an opportunity state because only physical impediments count as constraints on freedom. All right, so that's it. So we're not necessarily pushing people one direction or the other. We're just making sure uh, they are either constrained in certain ways, in which case they're not free, or not constrained. There's no obstruction. And then they can move in the direction they want. It's indeterminate, though, according to Nelson. Yet, as we already know, and I quote now from Hobbes, but as men for the attaining of peace and conservation of themselves thereby have made an artificial man, which we call a commonwealth. So also have they made artificial chains called civil laws. That's on page one forty seven. So artificial chains chains, those are constraints. Laws then are designed to constrain the natural liberty of men. Chain the citizens' movement, if you will, as though they were slaves. But unlike real change chains, sorry, unlike real chains, These laws are not completely immobilizing and actually quite easy to break. But because we have foresight, we understand the danger in doing so. And again, I quote from Hobbes, The liberty of a subject dayeth therefore only in those things which in regulating their actions the sovereign hath permitted, such as is the liberty to buy and sell and otherwise contract with another, to choose their own abode, their own diet, Their own trade of life and institute their children as they think themselves think, as they themselves think fit, and the like. Okay. Page 148. To be clear, this is not a list of natural rights, like Glock talked about with private property, or the you know, the founder's ideas about the pursuit of happiness. These are merely examples of what the sovereign may permit. With seeming seemingly no obligation or demand upon them to do so. While there is nothing stopping the sovereign from prohibiting any kind of movement through any kind of law, as we talked about before, the citizen has free reign to do anything not illegal. Okay, that makes sense. For Hobbes, this is corporal liberty. Okay, corporal liberty, as in corpus, corpse corpse the body so again you're free to move around any which way you want as long as it's not illegal as long as you're not chained by it and um i just want to sort of clarify here when i said that they're not real chains i think we can understand that so it's not really being a slave we're not in prison when there is a law because we can, in fact, break the law, and in, in fact, we do do it all the time. I don't know, you know, the example of um, speeding. You know, that's a law that's certainly constraining my movement. No doubt about it, it's like a chain on me wanting to go fast in my car. But uh, I break it on occasion. I know it's 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 very uh, bad of me to do, but I have done it. And uh, how do I get away with it? Well that's the funny thing, right? It's not like being in prison, is it? It's something else. And so you then have to think to yourself, well, why do I follow the law at all? And, and, and indeed, that's something we are going to consider more. But for, for the time being, we kind of got the idea here that, you know, the, the laws themselves are supposed to constrain our behavior. Um, and it's really just about the movement of our bodies, Okay, so in contemporary scholarship, this idea is sometimes called negative liberty. Uh, and so it's a kind of freedom. And, and to this, Isaiah Berlin, I've talked about Berlin's work a little bit before, he writes I am normally said to be free to the degree to which no man or body of men interferes with my activity. Political liberty in this negative sense is simply the area within which a man can act unobstructed by others. So again, that sounds very much like Hobbes, doesn't it? So this is easy to understand, uh, and as I said, just, just in line with what Hobbes describes above. The other kind of liberty Berlin identifies is positive liberty. And actually, this is from his famous essay, appropriately called Two Concepts of Liberty. Uh, Anyhow, so the second one is positive liberty, and it's a bit harder to grasp. And I just introduced this food for thought. And actually, you know, it's relevant to my earlier discussion of Mill and Locke. Um, Here, Berlin writes, I wish above all to... Conscious of myself as a thinking to be, I think it was, I wish above all to be conscious of myself as a thinking, willing, active being, bearing responsibility for my choices and able to explain them by references to my own ideas and purposes. I feel free to the degree that I believe that this is to be true and enslaved to the degree that I am made to realize that it is not Okay, so this positive liberty. I want to be at my best as I see it. But it may also be true that I am not in a position to know the end, as my reason may be impaired. So Berlin continues, writing that, It may seem at times justifiable to coerce men in the name of some goal, let us say justice or public health, which they would, if they were more enlightened themselves, pursue, but do not because they are blind or ignorant or corrupt. All right, so that's positive liberty, and I hope, again, that's a lot harder to understand, but it's like uh, positive liberty is fully uh, mastering everything that you want to be as a human being, Um, not just being unimpeded in your movement as the true of negative liberty, but being fulfilled entirely, reaching your goals. And as that second part of the quote I read suggests... If you yourself don't know how to achieve those goals, it may be helpful for somebody to coerce you to doing it. And in the end, you will be happy that they coerced you. I guess it's like a parent making you go to school. So Hobbes really does not seem to concern himself at all with this second kind of liberty, this positive liberty. Because unlike Locke or Mill, he is seemingly unconcerned with the good character or moral standing of his citizens. Their judgment need only be good enough to know to follow the law. Okay, so that's the idea here. Um, Hobbes is a negative libertarian, if you will. And I believe Locke and Mill, despite all people saying otherwise, they are positive libertarians. They really do focus focus on character. Locke, obviously, in relation to uh, property accumulation remarkably though Hobbes just as quickly admits now I'm on page 146 and generally all actions which men do in commonwealths for fear of the law are actions which the doers had liberty to o- omit so in other words because we always maintain the option to break the law we remain almost entirely free in a certain sense and, and that's kind of neat isn't it um, and again uh, kind of speaks to my earlier example about speeding uh Hobbes does not really believe that it is necessary to have the state having guns trained to the heads of the citizenry as a threat to violence so that we always follow the law, like as though each of us would have our own police officer following us around or constantly being monitored. Um, He says that's not necessary. We, of course, end up following the law because we recognize at some point it's good for ourselves. That's the idea. Okay, so uh, we then learn that the natural right to self-preservation, which we maintain even after we consent to be servants of the state, covers even more territory. So, so okay, so now I'm sort of transitioning a bit here, um, and, and I really want to get to the content of, of you know, our lives in, in the Leviathan. And we know we maintain self-preservation, and, you know, there was a suggestion that this can be a rather sort of open thing where, where we get a lot of stuff for this, uh, or it can be very constrained just above being a prisoner, as I mentioned just earlier. Uh, but now we're going to get a little bit more here. Um, for instance, here, he says, If the sovereign command a man though justly condemned, to kill, wound, or maim himself, or not to resist those that assault him, or to abstain from the use of food, air, medicine, or any other thing themselves without which he cannot live, yet hath that man the liberty to disobey. Aha! So, if this applies to even a condemned man, somebody who's been convicted of some terrible crime, it is fair to say that the state cannot deny any citizen access to food, breathable air, medicine, or any other thing that they may think allows them to live. In turn, the right to self-preservation can be understood as a rather higher bar to cross, indeed, or giving individual citizens a rather wider berth of movement, or more simply, the freedom to live a contented life as they see fit. This is not going so far as to say that the Leviathan must in fact be an advanced welfare state uh but it does say that it could be that. So we're not saying that it, the, the state has to provide us food, clean air, and medicine or any other thing, as Hobbes writes here on page 151. So it's not that we're getting it from the state, but we have to have access to those things. And that's kind of interesting. Like, So if you say, well, I don't have access to it. I don't have access to medicine. Let's say I can afford. Well, then, yeah, according to Hobbes here, you're saying, well, no, the state the state needs to make sure that's the case. That's the idea, so ah, this has opened up a whole world of possibilities for what the state actually is responsible for. Hobbes seems to make an an additional uh, point here about state power later in the chapter, writing, "...the obligation of subjects to the sovereign is understood to last as long, and no longer that the power lasteth, by which he is able to protect them. For the right of men have by nature to protect themselves, when none else can protect them." can by no covenant be relinquished. Okay, so on the one hand, we end up having a potentially significant push and pull between maintaining the right to self-preservation and the transferred or sacrificed right to freedom. For obvious reasons, self-preservation requires some freedom, and the question simply remains of how much, which is just what we were talking about. On the other hand, and depending on how much freedom we have, there may then be some indirect obligation from the state to not just allow you a wide berth of free movement, but to also ensure that freedom entails protection, which seems to include access to the things that allow for self-preservation, including, as it turns out, anything without which the citizen cannot live, which could conceivably be quite a long list of things. I'm, I'm not sure if that would include a PS5, but maybe it would, right? So, as we know, If those things then are not available in the Leviathan, we maintain the right to disobey any laws that make them unavailable. It is further established that we also, and I'm sort of talking here uh, in summary of Hobbes, we don't have to confess to our own crimes or convict ourselves in any way. The state cannot order you to kill yourself or another man. That sounds pretty good. Thus, in some cases, you can refuse even military service and cannot be punished for being a coward. Men have the right to defend themselves in groups if they feel threatened with death. Now, on this last point, Hobbes explains, but in case a great many men together have already resisted the sovereign power unjustly or committed some capital crime from which every one of them expected death, whether, they, "'Whether have they not the liberty then "'to join together and assist and defend one another?' "'Certainly they have.'" Whoa. Now, this is quite something. Hobbes, in an effort to be consistent, seems to conclude that while any first rebellion against the sovereign is unjust, sub- subsequent efforts of men to defend themselves against capital punishment for the r- original crime is just. And what if these men are successful in this defense? Hobbes, again, seems to leave room for revolution after all. So did you catch that? So he's saying you can't revolt against the state justly. But if you revolt against the state and get caught, you're rebels that have gotten caught, like those weirdos at the Capitol on January 6th. He says that you actually have the right to protect yourselves. And of course, that makes sense in his scheme of things, right? You never give up your right to self-preservation. So uh, you can get together in a group and you can try to protect yourselves against the state. And that seems kind of revolutionary to me. We still cannot forget that Hobbes thinks that, and I quote, law was brought into the world for nothing else but to limit the natural liberty of particular men, as he puts it in chapter 26. But we now can say also that that limitation is not unqualified. Writing on these chapters of Leviathan, Quentin Skinner warns that Hobbes remains anxious even at this juncture in his argument, to reassure his readers that the loss of liberty he has been describing is is itself heavily, heavily circumscribed. To suggest, as some commentators have done, that Hobbes displays an increasing hostility to claims on behalf of liberty and that this hostility culminates in Leviathan seems to me to misunderstand the direction of his thought. And I tend to agree with Skinner here. Altogether, it seems that we have more opportunities for the practice of negative liberty than we might first have thought. And it may be that obligations on the state to protect us involve elements of positive liberty as well. Not just to ensure that we have access to things without which we cannot live, but also that we actually use them for our own good or betterment. This ambiguity about the extent and responsibilities of government extends into the next chapter on the distinction between public and private organizations. Hobbes writes, For the father and master, being before the institution of commonwealth, absolute sovereigns in their own families, they lose afterward no more of their authority than the law of the commonwealth taketh from them. So in other words, the head of the household has absolute power over their families, except in areas where the Commonwealth has made a law to restrain or chain them, as Hobbes calls it earlier. But does not this then also include the obligation to protect, as just mentioned? If so, to what extent is the Leviathan obliged to insert itself into the private life of the household? Chapman goes as far as to argue that the family is... The Leviathan writ small, I quote Chapman, the scholar, serving as a model to educate children in good citizenship. And now still quoting Chapman, properly educated children for their part, learn their preservation and education are the consequence of the sovereign power of one parent, that such power is based on their consent, and that the power of the sovereign is likewise based on their consent. Hobbes' failure to say anything in Leviathan about how children, in fact, become subjected to the laws of the Commonwealth suggests that he expects the child already to feel obliged by paternal conditioning and instruction. So this is not quite going so far as to prescribe a a public curriculum for primary education in the household, but definitely links the private lives of the citizenry with some sort of public good. All right, so I, I hope that made some sense there, uh, that how do we learn then when we're little ones, they're uh, born into this uh, Leviathan, how do we learn that we have to follow the law? We first learn it by the example of our parents. Uh, your, your parents are like the Leviathan, right? And uh, you have to follow them, and then this sort of extends. So the Leviathan writ small, this then extends, of course, to you following the rules of the state, um, interesting idea, I guess. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of change my parenting technique by re, by by way of Hobbes here. I wonder how the kids will react. Uh, of course, this obligation to follow the law also extends to the adult population. According to Hobbes, among the many responsibilities of public ministers of the state, they also have authority to teach or to enable others to teach the people their duty to the sovereign power, and to instruct them in the knowledge of what is just and unjust, thereby to render them more apt to live in godliness and in peace amongst themselves. Now, most of this makes perfect sense in Hobbes' scheme of things. People must have knowledge of the law in order to live in peace. However, to live in godliness further implies a moral standard for behavior beyond the law, Which, of course, would be problematic if ever godliness and the law were to conflict, right? And so that's an interesting choice of words from Hobbes in that passage on page 167. uh, And does suggest, in fact, that public ministers, so we're talking about uh, government officials, have a responsibility to teach people their duty to the state. (laughs) And I guess this is something we do learn in school to some degree. We sing O Canada or, uh, you know, the Star-Spangled Banner, you know, uh, depending upon your, your your sense of patriotism, but that's certainly part of the public school curriculum, uh, no doubt about it. Okay, so the metaphor of the artificial man is continued in chapter 24, appropri- appropriately named of, nu- of the nutrition and procreation of a commonwealth. The nutrients that keep the commonwealth alive include trade, and territory, but also require the division of the land among the subjects towards equity and the common good. Notably, the propriety which his subject hath in his lands consisteth in a right to exclude all other subjects from use of them, and to exclude their sovereign. Now this would have upset John Locke because by his estimate the right to private property is among the natural rights of man, that government should be designed to protect, which provides a hard limit on government control. For Hobbes, however, the property owner cannot exclude the sovereign. Property, private property, is not a right but a privilege. However, Hobbes quickly places a qualification on this, saying again that the distribution of lands must be to the common peace and security, and that he will consider elsewhere cases where the commands of the sovereign are contrary to equity. That's on page 172. But before settling this matter, Hobbes discusses the procreation of the commonwealth through the establishment of colonies, noting that some colonies will be discharged of their subject subjugation to their sovereign that sent them. So so that the idea here is that's, uh, you know, uh, making a new Leviathan elsewhere procreating by making a colony and then that colony may at one point become separate from the mother country. There is no mention here of colonies that declare their independence as such. However, Lee Ward counters that the core of Hobbes' political thought is the proposition that political association is based upon an agreement of individuals, each possessing an inalienable right to self-preservation. The important question for our purposes is whether Hobbes believed the subject's right of self-defense amounts to a right to resist. While most scholars reject the idea that Hobbes' right of individual self-defense amounts to a politically relevant resistance right, I argue that it does. So he's saying Hobbes does allow for revolution. So uh, Lee Ward continues and concludes, While Hobbes' account of absolute sovereignty precludes any idea of succession based purely on democratic choice, or arguably even national or cultural aspirations, a remedial right of succession is discernible upon dissolution of the sovereign power or through rule that directly impairs the capacity of non-sovereign subordinate units to protect individuals. For Hobbes, it is inconceivable that a right of succession could promulgate in law or the Constitution, but it is just as difficult to imagine how, given his understanding of inalienable individual rights, Hobbes could simply reject or dismiss all group claims to succession in every conceivable case. So if Leeward is correct, then, it adds considerably to the limitation on government transforming the individual right to self-preservation into a group right to secede to revolt, if it is communally thought, community-wide thought, that self-preservation is at stake. Again, the actual conditions that meet this criterion are ambiguous and might even include confiscation of private property. Okay, so that's the idea here that for Ward, at least in his interpretation of Hobbes, the American Revolution would be allowable, right? Uh, that's that's the idea um, um that he argues for, and now he admits a lot of people don't agree with him. Hobbes, of course, is well aware of conquering states imposing new laws on the vanquished population. I continue. He writes, If the sovereign of one commonwealth subdue a people that have lived under other written laws and afterwards govern them by the same laws by which they were governed before, yet those laws are the civil laws of the victor and not of the vanquished commonwealth." But again, what if the victor is the revolting population of a colony or province? The same scenario would seem to apply. Hobbes provides yet another scenario which would amount to revolution, writing at the end of chapter 26. For a fundamental law in every commonwealth is that, which being taken away, the commonwealth faileth, and is utterly dissolved, as a building whose foundation is destroyed. And therefore, a fundamental law is that by which subjects are bound to uphold whatsoever power is given to the sovereign, whether a monarch or a sovereign assembly, without which the commonwealth cannot stand, such as is the power of war and peace, of judicature, of election of officers, and of doing whatsoever he shall think necessary for the public good. All the way to page 200. So, these so-called fundamental laws are the foundation upon which the Leviathan stands, and if any of them are eroded, the state itself begins to dissolve. Hobbes has already suggested individuals can both refuse military service and form in groups to defend themselves against state punishment. In other words, if enough citizens take these actions, this would be a fundamental challenge to those laws and thus to the life of the artificial man. Again, it would be revolution, I'm saying, is available in the text. In chapter 27, Hobbes further describes instances where men are allowed to break the law, including a claim of insanity and self-defense, but also... I quote from 208 when a man is destitute of food or other things necessary for his life and cannot preserve himself any other way but by some fact against the law as if in a great famine he take the food by force or stealth which he cannot obtain for money nor charity or in defense of his life snatch away another man's sword he is totally excused So we're not just stealing bread to feed our family, but we are doing anything deemed necessary for our lives. This, according to Hobbes here, is an excuse to break the law. Yet again, we can rightly wonder how long this list might be of things that are totally excused if we think that our lives require it. Again, is the PS5 on there? I kind of doubt it, but we can only hope. In chapter 28, we get a further reminder about why the state has a right to punish or commit violence against criminals. He writes, For the subjects did not give the sovereign that right, but onely is laying down theirs, strengthened him to use his own, as he should think fit, for the preservation of them all, so that it was not given, but left to him, and to him onely, and accepting the limits set him by natural law as entire, as in the condition of mere nature and of war of everyone against his neighbor. Okay, because the Leviathan remains in the state of nature, once again, there is no prohibition against it committing violence against anyone, whereas the citizen, by consenting to state power, has given up his liberty. Of course, unlike the individual committing violence in the state of nature, the nature of punishment To have for end the disposing of men to obey the law. Okay, so why does the state have this right to um, punish us? It is all of this threat so that we follow the law. Relatedly, it is also clear that state-sanctioned punishment cannot be too weak nor too strong as to meet this desired end. So, okay, what am I getting at here? Um, uh the idea is, of course, the state is allowed to commit violence. I think that this has been uh, established here and there, but I wanted to just be clear. We are not justly allowed to commit violence, let's say, um, you know, just, uh, you know, arrest somebody and throw them in a cage. We can't do that as individuals, yet the state can that's the idea. It has to be able to do that, and it has to do that uh, in, in a way of undivided authority. There can't be a bunch of different states within the state that have different laws. It has to be one set of laws for everybody. Uh, it has to do that in order to make sure everyone behaves the same way, uh, that are th- that they are equal under the law. But we then get a rather important admission from Hobbes that harm inflicted upon one that is declared enemy, falls not under the name of punishment. Because seeing they were either never subject to the law and therefore cannot transgress it, or having been subject to it and professing to be no longer so, by consequence deny that they can transgress it. All the hands that can be done them must be taken as acts of hostility. But in declared hostility, all infliction of evil is lawful. Ah, Although this is just mentioned in passing, we are given a clear example of an individual citizen that has been subject to the law and then simply by professing to no longer be so, becomes an enemy of the state, but not a criminal. In turn, all of the rules that apply to punishment are thrown at the window in exchange for the hostilities of war. And I hope you appreciate what's going on here. If you recall that point where we can break the law anytime we want, really, and that the state's not watching us at all the time. Um, uh, You know, you could do this in a holus bolus fashion, in an entire fashion, and say, none of the laws apply to me. And, of course, at that point, you're not really a criminal, but what Hobbes calls an enemy of the state, you're really not a citizen as such anymore. I know that's a bit of a strange idea. And so then all of the rules of the state of nature suddenly apply, uh, or as I'm calling it here, the hostilities of war uh, as Hobbes describes it the renouncing of subject subjugation so of citizenship which is a relapse into the condition of war commonly called rebellion and they that so offend suffer not as subjects but as enemies for rebellion is but war renewed all right so that makes sense so you can you can claim to be a rebel here but then you're an enemy of the state so any of the restraints perhaps on punishment that you would have in the state don't apply Maximilian Jade puts it this way. Hobbes defends the view that, as public enemies, rebels would return to the natural condition of war. He considers the possibility of banishment from the Commonwealth for the first time in the Elements of Law, a different work, suggesting that exile perpetual is a release from subjugation. For for as much as being out of the protection of the sovereignty that expelled him, a banished man hath no means of subsisting but from himself." Such a return to the state of nature would presumably imply that individuals regain their full natural rights, including the blameless liberty to use force against each other and others. So this is a rather odd situation on the face of it. It also seems as if citizens can declare their allegiance to the state and thus acquiesce to the law and, on a whim, declare themselves independent and rebel, and by pardon, then return back to the embracing arms of the state so you can get pardoned by the way here by Hobbes Yes yeah, okay you rebelled and we understand but we're going to pardon you just for the sake of um, you know civility and uh, peace uh, okay uh, what's when <laughs> what do you think will happen if I do this again? so on on the practical level this seems rather hard to take in an unmanageable mess. Uh, But we do see examples of this in history. Uh, For readers of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, Alcibiades will be a familiar name. He was a brilliant, brilliant military general and a man of great passion, and went from leading Athens to war against Sicily, to being declared a criminal and sentenced to death, to then leading an enemy faction, to then regaining citizenship, to then leading another faction against the Athenian Empire, to then return as a full citizen once again. Okay, so he got pardoned a bunch of times. Uh, his sentence commuted. Okay, Hobbes would be very familiar with the story, by the way, as he translated and published the very first English edition of Thucydides' ancient book. That's a fun fact. For all that has been presented, chapter 29, of those things that weaken or tend to the dissolution of a commonwealth, this may be quite helpful in answering the question of limitations, how much government is too much. Hobbes begins... Though nothing can be immortal which mortals make, yet if men had the use of reason they pretend to, their commonwealth might be secured at least from perishing by internal diseases. Okay, so clearly the stakes are high. In good part, I've highlighted how tenuous the Leviathan's grip is on the population. Poor education, uh, high passions, levels of corruption and criminality, and rebellion are among the internal diseases that threaten the life of the state. While fear of punishment of death and wounds of a violent death may bring the majority into line, there remains a constant present danger of civil war and dissolution of the state. In turn, the state must maintain strong armies and avoid factionalism or any division in government. As promised earlier, he also returns to the subject of property. He writes the difficulty of raising money for the necessary use of the Commonwealth, especially in the approach of war. This difficulty arises from the opinion that every subject hath of their property in his lands and goods, exclusive of the sovereignty sovereign's right to use of the same from whence it cometh to pass that the sovereign power, which foreseeth the necessities and dangers of the Commonwealth, finding the passage of money to the public treasury obstructed. Oh, boy. So, uh. You limited government, don't tread on me, American Revolution types might raise your eyebrows at all of this, right? So he's basically saying that the state can confiscate your property at any time in the name of the public good or in public protection. So in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson writes of a long train of abuses and usurpations which led the colonists to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Among these reasons was the imposition of taxes on us without our consent, including the tea tax of 1773, which led led itself to no end of trouble. So for the Americans, something as innocuous as a tax on tea, directed in part toward raising of monies, just like Hobbes advised, was simply too much for them. Too much government, if you will. Too unlimited government. And that led them to revolt or to rebel. That's the idea here. So, um, interesting. So, in that instance, too many taxes uh, um, caused rebellion. And Hobbes is saying, though, that you can take as much property as you need, uh, but uh, Jefferson is like, hold on, if you take too much, Right, Uh, he calls this a long train of abuses and usurpations. Tax my tea, and we're going to revolt. All right, so that's a problem, right? Uh, And this problem, combined with the presence of popular men or potent subjects, is bad, according to Hobbes. He writes on page two twenty nine: the popularity of a potent subject, unless the commonwealth have very good caution of his fidelity, is a dangerous disease because the people which should receive their motion from the authority of the sovereign by the flattery and by the reputation of an ambitious man are drawn away from their obedience to the laws to follow a man of those virtues and designs they have no knowledge and then add the independent wealth of the colonies and you have even more trouble. I'll explain all of this in a moment. Another infirmity of commonwealth is the immoderate greatness of a town when it is able to furnish out of its own circuit the number and expense of a great army to which may be added the liberty of disputing against absolute power by pretenders to political prudence which through bread for their most part in the lees of the people yet animated by false doctrines are perpetually meddling with the fundamental laws to the molestation of the commonwealth like. Little Worms. Okay, so these Little Worms then would include people like George Washington leading the Continental Army and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, who were potent men writing false doctrines. They certainly did meddle with the fundamental laws and molest the Commonwealth. So I hope that made sense there. What I'm saying is, you know, you have these potent men were very popular, right? They're writing false doctrines. They're getting the people on their side. And then on top of it, uh, because the colony, the 13 American colonies were sort of off a ways across the ocean, they then were able to raise a revolutionary army, the Continental Army. And this caused, of course, the dissolution of the uh, Commonwealth in that instance uh, with the American Revolution. So in the end, Hobbes accepts the idea of revolution I argue because it's page two thirty. for though the right of a sovereign monarch cannot be extinguished by the act of another yet the obligation of the members may for he that wants protection may seek it anywhere. Ah, so I I am with Lee Ward here. I mean, this, this seems to me pretty clear. Um, So the American revolutionaries, they went on to write a new constitution that permitted, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, n- a new form of government to to, to, to come about. Uh, but uh, the issue here uh, for Hobbes, and I'm trying to sort of summarize quickly, is you can't then write within, you can't write into your constitution or your laws the right to revolution itself. I, I hope that makes some sense. And, and that is true with uh, the United States, Um There is no right to revolution in the Americans, uh, in in the United States at all, because it wouldn't make any sense. You basically could say, well, you know, I don't like how things are going. I'm going to, you know, look at our constitution in this particular article and say, well, I I take the revolution clause and uh, the whole state uh, ends up collapsing. You can't really do that. So it's a very sort of strange situation. And this, this problem that the United States is sort of proud of its revolutionary origins and yet does not have within it the capacity to revolt again, this causes no end of, of of controversy Sorry, in the United States. Now, some people go as far to claim that the Second Amendment amounts to a right to revolution. So I just read the Second Amendment of the American Bill of Rights, which reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, so uh, that some people say, well, I can keep a gun, you know, or many guns in my house and uh, protect myself against the government. And in a way, that does sort of imply the possibility of revolution. But of course, if you look at the Second Amendment, this implies that the militia, is, in fact, what is uh, uh, necessary for the security of free, of a free state. And, of course, a militia is already regulated by a state which already exists. It is not uh, written that way for the purposes of establishing a new state, if you understand me. So you wouldn't have a w- well-regulated militia, however understood. And, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> We've been listening for a while, I assume, is that... Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not this idea that, sorry, sorry, okay, let me, let me just try to clarify. People say that when they say re- well-regulated mi- militia, it actually could just mean individual citizens. So so that that's been interpreted by the Supreme Court in that way, actually. So it is a right to bear arms, an individual right to bear arms, not just a militia. But even if we understand it that way. Even if we understand it that it's a set of individuals making up a militia, let's say at least in their minds, or one person being a militia unto their own, that militia, of course, is regulated by the United States as it exists. You can't be in a militia that then is thinking about the next state that it's going to create. That would truly be a rebel group. So you you, you can't really figure figure the Second Amendment as a right to revolution at all. Uh, Although Thomas Jefferson did write in 1787, about four years before the Second Amendment passed, that, quote, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. So in other words, violence resistance against the government reminds those in power to avoid extending their power too far, to go beyond their limits, to overextend their power, okay? Whatever that may be. Um... And indeed, this, perhaps, this attitude leads the United States, of course, to civil war, Uh, uh, you know, uh, in in 1861, 1862. And actually, on the verge of civil war in 1861, Abraham Lincoln, in his inaugural address, decides that, but if the destruction of the Union, by one or by any part, only of the states, be lawfully possible, the Union is less perfect than before the Constitution— having lost the vital element of perpetuity. Perpetuity, I can't say that. Or as he says more straightforwardly in a message to Congress in July that same year, the right of revolution is never a legal right. The term implies the breaking and not the abiding by organic law. At most, it is but a moral right when exercised for a morally justifiable cause. Okay, so that's Lincoln trying to get out of the problem. Okay. We can understand to some degree these differences in that Jefferson started the revolution whereas Lincoln was trying to stop one in, in, in part. He was trying to find this middle ground. Either way, it simply makes no sense to include a right to revolution within a constitution because at once government officials who swear to uphold the tenets of the constitution would also necessarily be pledging to destroy those very same tenets if the occasion should rise. Hobbes would not go so far as to agree that there is some external moral standard or self-evident truth that could ever justify the violent dissolution of the Leviathan. That noted, he seems very aware that potent subjects can successfully make this kind of argument, as did the American revolutionaries. All right, all right, I've gone on and on. Just a little bit more to the end of Part 2 and my discussion of Hobbes. Chapter 30 begins with the reminder that the end of the sovereign is, I quote, the safety of the people to which he is obliged by the law of nature and to render an account thereof to God, the author of that law, and to none but him. As I've mentioned many times already, this obligation can take many, many forms. It is interesting that God is the author of the law of nature, according to Hobbes, somehow writing in his creation and understood by humans through the use of reason so we understand what the laws of nature through reason somehow And this, of course, returns us to the idea of political science as being similar to natural science. But as I would be wrong not to point out, it is much harder, of course. Um, Political science is much harder than um, uh, natural science. As Hobbes writes later in the chapter, "...unless we shall think there needs no method in the study of the politics..." As there does in the study of geometry, but only to be lookers-on, which is not so, for the politics is the harder study of the two. Uh, There we go. Yes, much harder. You mathematicians have it easy. But more to the point, Hobbes continues by adding, But by safety here is not meant a bare preservation, but also all other contentments of life, which every man by lawful industry without danger or hurt to the commonwealth shall acquire to himself. So there's a balancing act. The state must somehow at least provide the conditions for safety, which include c- contentments for life. That, of course, could be quite varied. So so again, if you understand what I'm saying here, uh, what is the obligation of the state to make sure we live contented lives? Is it just them getting out of the way of us figuring out the best way we want to live? Or is something necessary for them to provide? And so it's a bit of a balance between the two. The over. All gold, though, uh, for Hobbes in his plan is quite ambitious. As he says here on page 232, time and industry produce everyday new knowledge. And as the art of well-building is derived from principles of reason observed by industrious men that had long studied the nature of materials and the diverse effects of figure. In proportion, long after mankind began, though poorly to build, so long time after men have begun to constitute commonwealths, imperfect and apt to relapse into disorder, there may principles of reason be found out by industrious meditation to make their constitutions, excepting by external violence, ever-lasting." Okay, so you can make an everlasting con- uh, um, constitution here. No doubt about it, if you if you build it properly, it's very hard to do, but we can figure it out. Um, and he is confident that we are eventually going to get it right. A constitution everlasting being the goal. So while some foreign enemy, or let's say even a natural disaster, an external force may destroy the state, we can at least avoid rebellion, civil war, and revolution. How again? It's all about the right prescription because he writes on page 233 the common people's minds unless they be tainted with dependence on the potent or scribbled over with the opinions of their doctors are like clean paper fit to receive whatsoever by public authority shall be imprinted in them funnily here he uses the term doctor and it is actually being applied to teachers and professors not medical doctors who do not write prescriptions of this sort Again, he's worried about the potent and learned men that give people the wrong ideas, putting the wrong ideas in their heads. So the common people's minds can have anything printed on them and you don't want people like Donald Trump or university professors, as the case may be, to um, give them the wrong idea. And I I must apologize, uh, Mr. Hobbes. He he didn't have a doctorate, I don't believe. I don't think I can call him Dr. Hobbes. Actually, he does want people in the university to write proper prescriptions, but ones that the government decides. He writes, it is therefore manifest that the instructions of the people dependeth wholly on the right teaching of youth in the universities. Well, I agree with that, but he's basically saying the government has to mandate the content of university studies. Okay, I don't like that idea. Also, while it is okay for the enfeebled to sit around, and he goes on to say, but for such As have strong bodies, the case is otherwise. They are to be forced to work and to avoid the excuse of not finding employment. There ought to be such laws as may encourage all manner of arts as navigation, agriculture, fishing, and all manner of manufacture that requires labor. Okay, so he's saying you can't just sit around. You can't sit around unless you're enfeebled. You can sit around, (laughs) but everyone else has to work. And now this sounds pushy. Remember, we're talking about the limitations of government here. And he seems to be saying not only you know, that we can mandate what is being taught in universities, but you can also tell people where to work, okay? Remarkably, Hobbes goes even further in the last chapter of part two writing, but seeing a commonwealth is but one person, it ought also to exhibit to God but one worship, which then it doth, when it commandeth, it be exhibited by private man publicly. And this is the public worship. The property whereof is to be uniform, for those actions that are done differently by different men cannot be said to be a public worship. Wow, so the state now also is regulating public worship, what people worship. So you can have your own private religion, I suppose, Hobbes says, but when it comes to worshiping in public There is a government-mandated religion. Well, let's call it the Church of England. Why not? And so that makes sense in his scheme of things, doesn't it? Because you don't want division. And indeed, it makes sense, of course, that he can censor books and uh, govern uh, public school and university curriculum because you want to be writing on people's minds something that they can all agree with. Okay, I got it. He thus ends part two with this salutation I, that I talked about somewhere earlier. And I quote here, I recover some hope that one time or other, this writing of mine may fall into the hands of a sovereign who will consider it himself. For it is short and I think clear, <laughs> without the help of any interested or envious interpreter, and by the exercise of entire sovereignty in protecting the public teaching of it, convert this truth of speculation into, into the utility of practice. So he's saying, take my book and apply it to the world. It's going to work, he says. All right. Thanks for listening. Jean-Jacques Rousseau's version of the social contract is next.